If you would take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you've picked up uh, a red Bible from any of the tables, Romans chapter 6 is on page 942. And uh, our text this morning will be Romans 6, 1 through 14. So I want to ask you one more time, if you would, to stand, if you're able, uh, so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. Hear the reading of God's word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Do you mean saying as we just pray one more time? Father, just I, I ask that you would help me. Help me to remember, to think clearly, to speak in a way that clearly communicates your words to your people. Empower what I say by your spirit so that it's not merely just the words of man, but 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 one preaching with the power of the Spirit of God. And then, Lord, do in us all that you desire to do for our God and for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Leo, Leo Tolstoy once cleverly noted, war can happen only because of our capacity to believe someone else will get killed in battle. That is to say, people campaign for war not because he thinks he will die. A man campaigns for war because he thinks someone else is going to die. Now, whether that's overstated a bit or maybe a bit overblown, I think it's unmistakably clear that we're apt to think of ourselves differently than we do of others. Sometimes we can think of ourselves worse than others, sometimes better than others, but, but it's very easy for us to think of ourselves in a very different way than others. And this can be true even when we think of the glorious truths of the gospel. Sometimes we can find ourselves preaching the glorious truths of the gospel and yet somehow believe we're except from them. 
Right? I, I, over, the, over the years of pastoral ministry, I've spoken to many individuals who would have stood at my side and preached to a brother or sister that they have forgiveness of sins, that there's, that there's nothing, no sin that they could do or could have done that would keep them from the forgiving grace of God. While they themselves, preaching that message, struggle to believe that God can really forgive their sins. Or, or would say to a brother or sister, look, you have assurance. He will hold you fast. He will hold you tight. That he who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. While their own lives are filled with all kinds of doubt and questioning about their own relationship with the Lord. Perhaps on the other end of the scale, there's also been occasions where uh, individuals would very easily point out the sin of others while being blinded to their own sin. And it's embarrassing and sad to say, I think I've been that individual at one point or another in my life. Each of those situations, I think, has been true of me. And yet, Paul makes clear that simply understanding and simply believing truths is not all that he longs for. In other words, when he wrote the letter to the Roman church, to the believers at Rome, he did not write it merely so that they would gain in their understanding. But he wrote these truths to them both so that they would gain in their understanding, that they would believe what he writes, and that they would apply it to themselves and live it out in their lives. You can see this very clearly even throughout the book to this point. Paul, one of the things he wanted to make extremely clear, and he, he wrote this to the first four chapters of the book of Romans, is he wanted people to understand that our justification, our being declared righteous before God, is not on the basis of us doing good works, but it's on the basis of our faith in the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Paul made that very clear through the first four chapters of the book of Romans. But Paul wasn't content to say, okay, you got that. If I were to test you on that or anything like this, I want you to have the right answer. He wanted, rather, that truth of justification by faith to begin to be experienced in their hearts and to, to be felt within them. And so he, he writes to them, look, since you've been justified by faith, I, I, I want you to know that you have peace with God, that you stand in His grace, that when you think of your death or the Lord's return, you can think of that day not in some kind of dreadful sense, but actually rejoicing and hope that you know that you belong to the Lord, that you feel assurance that, yes, there's been much sin in your life, but I want you to know that where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. You belong to him. He wanted us to feel that. So justification, know it and then feel it and feel it in our hearts and live it in our lives. But now, Paul's not content there either. When he begins Romans 6, what he wants us to see is that this doctrine, this truth that we've been justified by faith alone also radically alters our relationship with sin. In essence, Paul wants us to, to see this is not merely something to be known and understood and believed, nor is it something merely, in addition to that, to be felt, though it's both of those things. It's also a truth that has impact in our lives. We should live differently. We should walk in the truth of justification in a way that makes us say, my relationship with sin looks totally different now that I've been justified. What Paul wants us to see this morning, and I want us to see as a pastor here at Cornerstone Community Church, especially toward those who have found themselves what feels like trapped in sin, 
Maybe whatever sin it is, you just feel that you're there, that it's got your grips, its grips on you, and you can't walk away from it. That any thought today of repenting of that sin and walking away, right now the enemy says to you, look, don't even try it, because if you do try it, we both know it's going to be short-lived. You're not going to be able to walk away from that sin. It's got its claws in you. You're not going to be able to walk away from it, so don't even hope that's the case. Paul says to those individuals... I've got an answer for that. And, and so just, just pause for a second and think of this. If, if you're a pastor talking to a room full of people who are struggling with things like envy and greed, obsession with body image that may be manifesting itself in eating disorders, lustful pursuits that may be manifesting themselves in viewing pornography, anxiety that is gripping you so powerfully you feel like it paralyzes you and on and on and on where would you start right what would you say i mean i think it'd be very tempting for us to say well we've got to get together and spend weeks talking about how to discipline ourselves and brothers and sisters discipline is crucial but interestingly paul doesn't start there paul says If people are going to walk in holiness, one of the greatest keys is that they need to understand who they are. Interestingly, Paul talks about the fact that we've been justified, that we have peace, objects of the Lord's grace, spirit dwelling in us, and now he's going to call us to walk in obedience by reminding us of who we are now that we have been justified. So that's really what Paul is, is, is laying out this morning. In essence, what we're going to look at is Paul saying, I want you to live in light of who you are now that you've been justified. But in order to make the argument Paul makes, he begins by asking a question that kind of seems odd. He starts our text this morning by asking this. Verse, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, why does he ask that question? Well, he asked the question, I think, for a few reasons. One of them is because there is a certain simple, misguided logic to it, right? Paul has just ended chapter 5 saying, in Adam, we were born in condemnation and guilt and sin, and that was manifesting itself in our lives. And yet, where that sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more because Christ came in and he lived a perfect life, died for our sins, rose from the dead. So in him, we can have perfect righteousness. So where sin abounded in Adam, grace abounded much more in Christ. So there's a certain logic that says, hold on a second, if sin abounding causes grace to abound, then maybe we should just keep sinning so that grace can keep abounding. We might compare it to a child who's being given a spanking by his parents. And, his parent, and one of his parents is, is spanking him and, and, and says to the child something like, the only reason I'm doing this is because I love you. Right? By spanking you, I show you that I love you. And the child thinks, well, then I should give my dad more opportunities to demonstrate his love for me. Right? I'll just sin more. He will abound more in love, and all will be great. Well, we know that's a silly, silly argument, but that kind of simple, misguided argument, there's a certain logic to it. So Paul, one reason I think he raises the question, because he says, I just want to address it. If it ever enters your mind, let me tackle it. 
A second reason, though, that Paul raises the question is because actually he had been charged with teaching something like this. If probably just one page, but if you just turn over one page in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 8, Paul had actually brought up this issue. Romans chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then Paul says about those individuals, their condemnation is just. So actually, there were some individuals saying, hey, you know what Paul teaches? Paul teaches that you should just do more and more evil because where evil abounds, good abounds all the more. Or do more and more sin because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So Paul was actually getting this charge that his preaching was promoting people sinning more and more and more. Now, let me say this before I dive into Paul's answer. If we're not preaching the gospel of grace to such an extent that some people are saying, well, if that's true, it almost makes it seem like we should just sin more and more and more. If you're not getting that response that Paul got, you may not be preaching the gospel of grace strong enough. In other words, Paul doesn't answer this question by backtracking on what he taught. He doesn't say, no, 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 no. Okay, you're thinking we should just sin more so that grace may abound. Okay, well then, well then let, me, let me get away from everything I've said. You're not justified by faith alone. We've we got to start doing all this good to be justified. No, 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 Paul says, you've heard me correctly. You are justified by faith alone. There's nothing that you've done that contributes to your righteous standing before God. Simply what Christ says. So Paul doesn't back off that. But I think the third and maybe the main reason that Paul brings up this question is just because asking this question lets him dive into a truth he wants to teach them. And he wanted the Roman Christians to understand that since they've been justified, it not only means they have peace, it not only means they're objects of grace, it not only means that they can have assurance and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but it also means their relationship with sin has been drastically altered so that they can live entirely different lives. So let me then just lay out for you his argument this morning. I'm going to do it uh, in four brief steps. And the first one is this. Number one, as believers, we are united with Christ so that what's true of him is true of us. As believers, we are united with Christ so that what's true of him is true of us. Now, if, you thought, if you're thinking to yourself, Lee, I think you mentioned that last week. I did mention that last week. If you're thinking, you, or two weeks ago, if you're thinking, Lee, you may even mention that three weeks ago. I probably did. It's, it's, it's because not only is it just a true statement I think we need to think of often, but this is the argument Paul was making in Romans chapter 5, especially the text we last looked at, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. So what Paul's doing when he begins his argument this morning is he's building on the argument he's already made that what happens at the point of saving faith when you and I believe we are united with Jesus Christ so that what's true of Jesus becomes true of us as well. This idea then of union with Christ, or being united with Christ, or being in Christ, Paul talks about it all through this text. He doesn't elaborate, he doesn't explain it, but he assumes you know what he's talking about. And, and notice, it's not until verse 5 that he actually uses this language of united with him. Verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So it's true, it's only in verse 5 that he actually uses that phrase, united with him. But it's all over the place. Look at verse 3. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, baptized into Christ, union with Christ. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him. He was buried, we were buried with him. Uh, Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ. Or verse 11, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this isn't some exception of Paul's writings. When Blake got up and read from Colossians earlier, you heard Blake multiple times reading, in him, in Christ. In fact, in Christ, the phrase in Christ, in the Lord, and in him occur 216 times in Paul's writings. If you'll look at my sermon manuscript, I have a footnote there. I didn't count them, but somebody else, probably a computer did, right? 216 times. This is just how Paul talks about salvation. Why? Because this is what salvation is. Salvation, again, I I, I told the interns this a few weeks back. I just kept trying to drive it into their minds. Salvation is this. What is, when the Bible talks about salvation, what is it talking about? When we talk about being saved, what are we talking about? Salvation is this. Salvation is the benefit that we receive by being united with Christ by faith. So that what's true of him is true of us. So all of the blessings of salvation you talk about, you can talk about them in terms of being united with Jesus, union with Christ, right? So Jesus lived a perfect life 2,000 years ago. Why am I today affected by his perfect life? It's because when I believe I'm united with him so that his perfect life counts for me, so that I can stand before God on the day of judgment and not hear, Lee, you did okay, but I can hear, you're declared perfectly righteous, not on your own. You did nothing worthy of that declaration, but you've been united with my son by faith, and his perfect life counts for you. On a side note, let me just say this real briefly because I know this question comes up all, a lot in our minds, but oftentimes when people ask the question, can someone be saved without believing in Jesus Christ? That is such a misguided question, it's hard to illustrate how misguided it is. That would be like saying, can you be a bachelor and married? Well, no, being a bachelor by definition is not being married. To ask the question, can I be saved without placing my faith in Jesus Christ? No, because salvation by definition is the benefit we receive by being united with Jesus Christ by faith. So the starting point, the premise that that we have to understand that Paul's picking up from what he argued in the text we looked at two weeks ago until this morning is this. As believers, we're united with Jesus so that what's true of him is true of us as well. Now, with that in place, we can now follow Paul's argument. Point two, because we've died with Christ, we are free from sin's enslaving power. Because we've died with Christ, being united with him by faith so that what's true of him is true of us, because we've died with Christ, we're free from sin's enslaving power. Now, when Paul asked that question in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? His quick answer is, by no means. But he doesn't stop there. He's now going to unfold his argument. By no means. Why? Why is it so absurd that we would continue to sin, Paul? Well, he answers. The end of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Now, here's what I think Paul's assumption is when he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? I think he assumes that all of us will give kind of like a puzzled look, right? Like, what? Paul, when, when did I die to sin? Because look at me, right? I'm walking around. I'm alive, right? But you're talking about it's absurd. By no means should I sin that grace may abound because I died to sin and therefore cannot live in it. So Paul says that, that under, it's almost like between verse 2 and verse 3, Paul assumes puzzled look. And so he says, verse 3, do you not know, you who are looking so puzzled at me, don't you know? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Well, now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Why is he diving into baptism, being baptized into Christ, being baptized into his death? Well, here's, I think, what Paul's saying. When Paul talks about us being baptized, he's talking about us being baptized, using it as a reference to when we first believed. In other words, by saying... Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, he could have just as easily said, all of us who have believed in Christ. Well, why doesn't he just say then, all of us who have believed or when you first believed? Well, he does sometimes in Romans. In Romans 13, 11, Paul is referring to the Roman believers and he says, when you first believed. So sometimes he says that. But sometimes he'll use another euphemism to, to indicate that same moment when we were first saved. So to the Corinthian believers, for example, he'll say to them in 1 Corinthians 1, he doesn't say, think about for a second when you first believed. Instead, he says this, consider your calling, brothers. What's he wanting them to think about? He's wanting them to think about when they first came to faith in Christ. Because the point he's going to make is, when you first came to faith in Christ, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble, not many of you are rich. Well, why does he say consider your calling? Because it's just a euphemism, because he, he knows that they understand that if they ever believed, it's because God called them to himself. Well, sometimes he uses the euphemism of baptism as a way of pointing to the time when they first believed. Remember your baptism. Well, why does he do that? The reason he does that is because in the biblical world, baptism was the means by which people publicly professed their faith. It just, it just was. In, in my upbringing, the regular way we publicly professed our faith was by walking down the aisle of a church. And so you'll hear that sometimes. Somebody in my home church might even say something like, now, now when did you first walk the aisle? Or what are they saying by that? They're, they're, they're saying, when did you first believe? But, the, but they're making reference to, to, to the means by which I was publicly professing the faith. In the Bible, there wasn't walking an aisle. In the Bible, there was walking into a body of water, whereby you were immersed in that water and brought up out of that water, and that was the means by which you confessed your faith. So just as we might use euphemisms like, when did you walk the aisle, or when did you pray a prayer, or pray to receive Christ, or something like this, in the Bible, they just would have easily said, hey, when were you baptized? This is one reason why we as a church Try to, try to quickly practice when someone becomes a believer. We don't like to separate. If, if possible, we don't have to separate for a long time. They're becoming a believer and professing faith in Christ. Now, why in this case does Paul then use that euphemism? If he could have just said when you first believed or when you were first called by God, why does he say in this case, verse 3, do you not know that all of us have been baptized? 
The reason he's using baptism as the euphemism for noting when they first believed is because baptism is the perfect picture for what he's arguing. What he's wanting them to understand is that by being united with Christ, you died with him. What better reference is there than baptism? As you saw this morning, an individual who is baptized is, is lowered under the water and brought up again, signifying, I've been united with one who lived, who died and was buried, and who was raised from the dead. And so Paul's just saying, listen, the moment you came to faith in Christ, I want you to understand that you were united with Christ in his death. And so, and so this is what Paul makes very clear. We've been united with Christ. When, when Jesus died, we died with him. And when Jesus died, he died to sin. Paul makes this clear in verses 9 and 10. I'm going to skip for a little bit. I'll come back to it. Verses 9 and 10, Paul says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So Jesus Christ, on the cross, takes the weight and the power and the penalty of sin, and he dies to it. And Paul wants us to understand, listen, you're united with Christ so that just as Jesus died to sin, you died in him, and therefore you died to sin. This is what he lays out for us in verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, when, when Paul says our old self and our body of sin, what he's talking about is who we were in Adam, our condemned, guilty, sinful self. Paul wants to say, listen, that person who you were in Adam, condemned before God, in your sin, sinful nature, all of that, you, and I think when he says um, our old self and our body to sin, I think those are just parallel ideas. He says, listen, your old self and your body of sin, who you were in Adam, crucified, died. Why? Verse 6, the very end of it. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, well Paul, how does, how does dying with Christ lead to me not being enslaved to sin? His answer, verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Think of it this way. Imagine that you were, just by your debt, by your legal debt, you were enslaved to a master who was a terrible master. So you lived your whole life as a slave to one who was your master, who was just rough. He put on you burdensome tasks. At times, whether you failed or didn't fail in those tasks, he would just regularly beat you. And then one day it got out of hand. One day after years of this enslaving, abusive relationship where you're doing burdensome tasks and being beaten all the time, one time his anger just boils over and he beats you and beats you and beats you until you die. And you're left lying there in the road dead. And his other slaves are, are kind of gathered around you. And they're looking at this thinking, what a terrible moment. And the slave, the master, wanders off. And finally, one of them says, well, this is a terrible moment. He's, he's died. I mean, his, his slavery led to his death. But at least now, he's no longer a slave. Now his debt is over. He was indebted until death, but now he's died, and so now he's served until death, and now he's free. There's no legal binding thing anymore. He's free. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us. Paul says, listen, there was a relationship with sin where you were under the penalty of sin, and you were under the power of sin, and it was an enslaving relationship. 
However, Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised so that you might be legally justified. You might be freed. Your, your, the power of sin might be broken. You've died to it like that slave died and his master has no legal claim. He was only tied to him until his death. Now that the slave died, the master can't do any kind of controlling power, any kind of claim to enslavement anymore. You've died and you're set free. And Paul says, that's what's happened to you as believers. There was once a time where sin had a claim on you. It had a claim on you with its penalty, and it had a claim on you with its power. But you have died to sin, and here's the good news. You died to sin, but you didn't have to physically die. You died to sin, but you didn't actually have to go through the suffering of facing death in order to die to sin, because your representative and your substitute, Jesus Christ the righteous one, died for you. But you also died in him. So because you've been justified, Paul says, listen, I want you to understand this. You're no longer enslaved to sin. You don't have to sin. It's been radically altered. But he doesn't stop there. Our union with Christ also means if we were united with him in death, we'll be united with him in resurrection. So point three, because we've been raised with Christ, we can live to God and will live forever. Because we've been raised with Christ... We can live to God and will live forever. Now let's go back then and catch verses 4 and 5. Paul says in verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, which is what we've been arguing, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or again, verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. But the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, it's not just Jesus' death that you're united with. It's also his resurrection that you're united with. Because as believers, you're united with Christ. What's true of him is true of you. He died to sin. Well, he also rose from the dead. So how does Jesus' resurrection affect me and you? If we're believers, I understand how his death affects me. Died to sin, so sin's penalty, done. Sin's power, done. I'm not enslaved to it anymore. But how does his resurrection affect me? Paul mentions two ways. One, being united with Jesus who was raised from the dead means, number one, that in the future, I'll be raised from the dead as well. So will you. It means that in the future, we're going to experience the resurrection. If we die before Jesus Christ returns, then when he returns, he will speak a word to us, and our bodies will actually be raised from the dead and made perfect to be with him forever. If we're alive at the moment he comes back for us, and we've not yet died, then our bodies in that moment will be changed, will be glorified, given resurrection bodies, and we will live with them forever. And Paul says the reason you know that's going to happen is because you were united with Jesus by faith, and he was raised. So verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall, look at the future aspect of this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Or verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, right? We will be raised. So 
part of the benefit of being united with Jesus who was raised from the dead is that we get to look to the future and say, I will one day be raised. But there's a second benefit that's not simply future, but present. The second benefit is is not only will we be raised one day, but right now we get to live. Right now we have life. The resurrection life right now, eternal life in one sense, has already begun in our lives. So, so notice that Paul, though he will talk about it being future, we will be united with him in the resurrection. We will live. He also says in verse 11, So you must also consider yourselves right now dead to sin and right now alive to God. Or verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might right now walk in newness of life. So how does this work? Well, let's go back to our illustration. You're a slave under a terrible master, burdensome task, beat you, beat you, beat you. Finally, he beats you to the point that you're dead. All his fellow slaves gathered around you looking at your body and they say, what a terrible scene, what a terrible day, what a terrible sight, and yet, at least he's free. He was a slave until death while he's died. He's now set free. His master no longer can enslave him anymore to his terrible ways, his tyranny. That's done. And the master walks off and the slaves walk off and they go and they move to another town. Now, in one sense, what they're saying is true, You've died, no longer are you enslaved. But that's kind of an empty statement if you remain dead, right? Well, you've died and now you're free. Yeah, but you're dead. But now imagine this. He's died and he's free. And they wander on. And then up walks another man who has all kinds of people under him whom he cares for whom he loves, whom he cherishes, whom he treasures. His life is so that he might care for them and lavish on them the riches of his kindness and his grace. And he walks up to you and your dead body there and he simply touches your dead body and all of a sudden you are raised to life. And you say to that glorious man who's given you life and whom you see just lavishes grace and care and love on all those under his care and and you look to him is there a chance in the world that you would say sir i cannot make it on my own and so i must go back to my old dreadful tyrant of a master who has only wanted my ill not a chance in the world you would get to stand up alive and go i'm free I'm free from that enslavement that was my doom and that was my ill and I was enslaved to sin and now I'm alive and I cannot go out on my own. I must submit myself to another. But sir, can I submit myself to you? Can I live my life now to you, one who would love me and care for me and and, and lavish his kindness and grace on me? Paul says that's the picture. In the Bible, you never get to go out on your own. You're always a slave, right? This is why Jesus says you can't have two masters. You serve God money. 
But what Paul is saying is you're no longer a slave to sin. You've died to sin and you've been made alive so that you can now live to God. And God, as our master, is not a tyrant who would beat us and always have some kind of trigger finger just ready to pounce on us with his anger. Rather, he's one that is just ready to pounce at any moment with grace and love and mercy, and a reminder that you are treasured by him. And Paul says, I want you to know being united with Jesus in his resurrection means you get to right now live unto God. Died to sin, and by being united with Jesus in his resurrection, you now get to live to God. This is why Paul says in verse 10, for the death he died, Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives He lives to God. And now Paul instantly turns to application. Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In other words, you've had a change of masters. No longer enslaved to sin because you've died to it. You are walking under the care and in obedience to God because you're alive to Him. And this is why then Paul ends this section, verses 12 through 14, with the great exhortation, which is my last point. Number four, we need to live each day in light of these realities, living in righteousness. We need to live each day in light of these realities that we talked about, that we've died with Christ to sin, that we're alive with Christ to God, and we need to live each day in light of these realities, living in righteousness. Notice what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your members to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law but under grace. This is Paul's way of saying you've been transferred out from condemnation and guilt. You've been brought out of that to grace, and therefore he's saying to us, listen, present yourselves in obedience to God. Don't serve sin anymore. It's not your master. Now, by saying this, Paul is acknowledging, even though we've been justified, sin is still a lingering reality. Until the resurrection, you and I will not be free completely from desire to sin. We'll know it in our beings. There'll be time, something come along, it might provoke us to be anxious, it might provoke us to envy, it might provoke us to anything like that. So sin is not eradicated until the resurrection. But something significant has happened you're no longer enslaved to it. So what I mean this morning is this. I'm going to say to all of us this morning, here's the call of this sermon. Repent. Right? If you're walking in sin, maybe just repeatedly, just just walking in this pattern of some particular sin that you just feel like has gotten hold of you, I'm going to call you this morning to repent of that sin and walk in obedience to Christ. And I know, listen, if the devil is saying to you, don't believe what he says, you cannot be free of this. You and I both know it. It's been a pattern in your life. You've lived it. You've lived it day in and day out. Don't think that you have any hope. What you can say to the devil is, no, 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 no. That's not true. When God declared me righteous in Christ, justifying me, it not only meant legally, that I'm declared righteous before God, but it also meant through union with Christ that I've died to sin's enslaving power. Sin's penalty has not only been dealt with, its power has been dealt with. 
you are not a slave to it. As a Christian, there's nothing in the world that says you have to keep walking in the sin you're walking in. You can walk out of it. So what you can say to the devil in this moment is, no, 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 I believe the Bible, and so in accord with verse 11, I'm going to consider myself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to repent of this sin and walk in obedience. This is what Paul would have us to do. I said in the beginning, what Paul wants us to see is live in light of who you are. Live in light of the fact that you've died to sin and are now alive to God. And it's not just to the Corinthians Paul said this. In fact, I want to conclude by reading to you a few verses out of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Here's what Paul says. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And now listen to this next sentence. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Therefore walk in light of who you are. And that's my call to us this morning. Brothers and sisters, such were some of us. But we are not anymore. We've been justified, set apart to live lives in obedience to God. And so one of the things we get to do week by week, even as baptism is an act whereby we confess our faith, the Lord has given us another ordinance, this meal whereby each week we can say, Lord, we've heard your word, and our response by faith is we've heard your word, and we will walk in obedience to your word by faith. And so this morning, how can you tangibly express, I've heard this word and I want to turn from my sin and look to Christ by faith. Walking away from sin's enslaving power to walk in obedience to Christ. One of the ways that we can tangibly demonstrate this is by eating the bread together and drinking from the cup together. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, if you've never been converted, then I want to encourage you to place your faith in Christ today, the one who lived and died and was raised. If you want to talk to me or, or your neighbor or somebody after the service, we'd love to talk to you. And I want to exhort you to come to faith in Christ and then publicly profess that in baptism. That's how the Bible, that's how they did it in the biblical days. That's how we do it as well. If you are a believer and you profess your faith in Christ and you're a member of a church that just holds up the gospel, then we're going to take a moment of silence in a second for the ushers to come forward, the musicians to get in place, and then we're going to distribute the bread and the cup. And I want to encourage you, if that's who you are, to use this as an opportunity, we'll corporately, we'll eat the bread together. We'll drink from the cup together. And it will be our way of corporately proclaiming we have been united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And by faith, we're walking in obedience to him. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.